Well, let us give attention to public reading of the Word of the Lord. And find your attention to Psalm 113. Psalm 113. Hear the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, most of us uh, are well acquainted with the fact that uh, life is uh, filled with uh, inequities. There's always going to be unfairness. Um, there's always going to be abuses of uh, power. Fairness is an elusive concept. Uh, but the uh, answer for the man of faith is always to trust God. And God always has an answer for the man of faith. Uh, in our text this morning, uh, the people are summoned to praise uh, the Lord uh, perpetually and continually, verses 1 to 3. Uh, because of who God is. He is at the pinnacle of the creation, uh, and he is without peer, verses 4 and 5, and yet he condescends in grace and mercy to exalt the humble to nobility, verses 6 to 9. It's kind of really a story of uh, God uh, reversing the uh, misfortunes of his people. And that in the end, he will exalt all of his people to nobility uh, and rescue them from all of the inequities of life. Uh, this is a uh, psalm of uh, descriptive praise. So the psalmist is praising God and describing to us and telling us why he's praising God. Uh, it's very interesting that this psalm was sung before the Passover meal, which means... It's very likely that as our Savior was about to inaugurate the new covenant, uh, he's going to trust God to exalt him. And again, it's very likely uh, that uh, along with his disciples, uh, he, he sang that hymn uh, in preparation to go to the greatest inequity of all of life, the cross. If you have your New Testament, uh, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 30. So the disciples are gathered in the upper room, partaking of uh, Last Supper, celebrating the last Passover meal. Matthew 26, 30, and after singing a hymn, I think it's very likely they sang this hymn, Psalm 
1.13. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Think about the context. The greatest trial of history is about to occur. The most deceitful, perfidious act of evil is about to happen to a righteous man. We could trust God. And this psalm tells us why. Uh, the summons to praise um, is uh, developed from uh, the Hebrew word to praise and then a very shortened uh, word for the name of God, Yah, shortened form of uh, Yahweh. So it's the praise of the covenant God of Israel. It's very interesting to me that the congregants uh, that are summoned to praise are called servants of the Lord. Uh, to me, that's in incredible irony because in our culture, servants is a very pejorative term. Uh, we think of servants as perhaps someone that comes to our household and engages in chores that we, we don't want to do, and perhaps we're blessed enough that we can uh, pay them to do those things. Uh, but again, the word servant, mostly, generally, usually, if not always, is the pejorative term, except in the Bible, called the great servant songs. Uh, the servant of the Lord, of course, is our Savior because he served his people. He undertook to engage uh, the lowliest of tasks, and yet he's praised uh, for doing just that. Um, there's a reference to uh, the name of the Lord that is a reminder of his reputation and his renown uh, among, among his people. Uh, praise the name of the Lord. We, we are praising essentially our Lord's reputation, that he rescues his people all the time, every time. Uh, of course, not immediately. We are caught in the vices of unfairness, inequity, uh, that sometimes abound, uh, sometimes more intensely at different periods in our lives and certainly in the history of civilization. Uh, but God controls the vice. And his reputation is he never forgets his own. None will be lost. The nature of the praise in verses 2 to 3 is to be perpetual, perpetual praise. Again, uh, look at the text. Uh, from this time forth and forever. So from now, throughout the rest of time, we're to praise God as the servants of the Lord. Uh, it's not only to be uh, perpetual, it's to be continual. Look at the other merism uh, in verse 3, from the rising of the sun to its setting. It's a very beautiful merism. I mean, you know that uh, the sun rises and it sets. But we're to praise him throughout the time, continually, uh, because of uh, who he is and what he has done. And the psalmist gives us two reasons to praise God throughout uh, the day. Uh, the first is in uh, verses 4 to 5. And third, that we, uh, we learn uh, that he is, uh, he is high above all the nations. His glory is above the heavens. 
So he's exalted above all of the nations. Uh, he is above them. They are beneath him. Uh, that's like saying he's God over the United States, over China, over North Korea, over the nation of Russia, and every other nation in between. Uh, something of this in uh, Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, the context of Isaiah chapter 40 is quite remarkable because uh, the children of Israel are going to be in captivity uh, because of uh, the nation of Babylon, uh, that God sends to discipline them because of their idolatry. And uh, Babylon, of course, was the world power of the day. And the people of Babylon are going to mock the God of the children of Israel because they're saying, well, we beat your God. Uh, Marduk defeated uh, Yahweh. And in Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet is reminding them that that's really not the case, uh, that God has come to rescue them. They're in captivity, or going to be in captivity because of their idolatry. You become an idol worship worshiper, God's going to come for you sooner than later because he doesn't withstand idolatry. And the nation in which we live in, by the way, is filled with idols. And as God's people, we should be very careful. Uh, more particularly, we worship ourselves, I think, in America. We worship self. And we exalt self above uh, the God of heaven. Uh, but God uh, is, is the true God. And so in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 17, the prophet says, All the nations are nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Babylon was nothing to God. When he is finished with Babylon, he will send the Medes and the Persians to destroy Babylon. And when he's finished with the Medes and the Persians, he will send the Greeks and the Romans. And by the way, when he's finished with every other nation in the world, he'll come and rescue his people, and none will be lost. Because there's no nation in the history of civilization that can get in God's way to keep him from getting at his people and preserving and protecting them. Uh, it's the point of uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 40, verses 18. To whom then will you liken God? What likeness will you compare with him? Uh, he, he says... Uh, the maker of the idol comes and he fashions an idol or he cuts down a tree and uh, makes a wood statue of it. Um, you know, by the way, we do that a lot in America. Sometimes we carry good luck charms around our, around our necks. Um, I pass by a home on, on, uh, when I leave the church and when there's a religious idol outside. There's a beautiful garden around it. I'm kind of impressed with the garden. I don't know about the idol. But I said to myself, every time I thought I'd drive by that, I said, really? Are you kidding me? You're really going to come out here and have a place of worship to a statue? Uh, God cannot be likened to a statue. Uh, you cannot make a statue that could, in any sense of the imagination, encompass the majesty of the perfections of the immutability of the greatness of God. He is at the expanse of the heavens and cannot be made into a form or a fashion. But we do that all of the time. We should not. We should be warned because of the greatness of God. 
Notice Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. He who sits above the vault of the earth, its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. This, this earth is the stepping stool of the greatness of the God of heaven. There's a, a parody of uh, Psalm 113 in which the psalmist is, uh, is praising God. It's a parody of that in Revelation chapter 13, verse 14. You need to understand that uh, Satan is the master counterfeiter. And he attempts to counterfeit everything that God does. Even his redemptive work, he attempts to counterfeit. Uh, but certainly in manifesting power. So notice the parody in Revelation 13 uh, and in verse 14. Pardon me, verse, verse 4. And they worship the dragon. The dragon, of course, being Satan. Notice the word worship. We worship God. Uh, those who are outside of Jesus Christ, whether they know it or not, worship the dragon. Because he gave authority to the beast. The beast is a wicked government. It's per persecuting the people of God. Uh, governments that turn evil because they transcend uh, the boundaries which God sets for government uh, in the scriptures. Uh, they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? Well, it's a parody of worship. Um, the psalmist is telling us that God is greater than the beast. In fact, God creates the beast. Uh, Satan is a created being. God created him. And God uses him really as his servant, as his messenger to do his will. Uh, but Satan here is gathering worship unto himself that belongs to God alone. Uh, the parody is a reminder to each of us as Christians that we should be very careful about what we give our hearts to uh, because our hearts belong to God. And uh, we should be uh, very careful about what we worship because only God is worthy of worship because he is above everything. He is peerless in his perfections. Um, and that's why we are to sing praises to his name. He has no peers. Uh, you and I have peers. At work you have peers. You have colleagues. Uh, some of you have bosses. And uh, you, you must render to them according to your uh, job description, and rightfully so, and they give something back to you. Uh, we give nothing to God. Uh, he alone is great. He doesn't even need us to worship him. If he needed us to worship him, he wouldn't be God. He needs nothing. He transcends all of time in his greatness. And uh, everything is like a bunch of grasshoppers. Kind of a crude metaphor of the creation. Uh, the lowest, some of the lowest life forms are insects. It's just everything is chump changed to the greatness of our God. Uh, I'm not deriding the importance of insects. They play a role in God's creation. Uh, 
but we know the Creator, the Master, who has no peers. He doesn't arm wrestle with Satan and depend upon the church to pray him to victory. He is victory. He defines victory. Everything that he does is victorious. If God did something that wasn't victorious, he wouldn't be God. It's the majesty of our God. Uh, if you will, non pareil in his majesty and perfections. Uh, no slight of shadow or movement of darkness. Uh, no change, because change uh, speaks to imperfection. So our God doesn't need to know change. You and I are continually changing, sometimes for the worse. Uh, but God knows no change, because when you're perfect, you don't change. It's the majesty of our God. It's the reason the psalmist is praising God. By the way, I think it's very sad in many respects in our country, many people are uh, uh, praising government, looking to government to uh, fix inequities. Uh, generally, governments uh, only establish further inequities when they attempt to fix inequities. Uh, and the nature of government really it trends towards tyranny. That's why it's very important that we understand. We give our allegiance to God. Now, I understand there are occasions which we give allegiance to the government. Uh, time in my life, I swore allegiance to protect and defend the Constitution. Not a governor, not the president, but the Constitution. An idea of government. Uh, but behind it all is the majesty of God. Uh, the description here of God is that he is enthroned uh, on uh, on high. He is at the pinnacle of creation, and he is supreme over it. The supremacy of God uh, demands that he is sovereign. Uh, God is king over everything, and because he's king over everything, he's sovereign over everything. Uh, that our God is sovereign. Uh, most every Christian acknowledges that, but I think really, truly few people really believe it. That our God is sovereign even over inequities and injustice. Uh, because there's nothing that escapes his rule or his gaze or his knowledge or his perfections. Uh, Psalm 103, and verse 19. Uh, is a reminder of this. The psalmist says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. Uh, meaning that no one on this earth can topple his throne or get at him. They'd like to, but they can't. Uh, Non-Christians, if you think about it, in the, the most purest form, really hate God because he's king over them. Charles Spurgeon once said that men love God everywhere except upon his throne. As Christians, we love him on his throne because he means that he is our protector and defender and he will win our battles for us in his sovereignty. Uh, it's very interesting, I, I mentioned earlier that uh, Psalm 113 was, I believe, uh, sung by our Savior before he goes to the cross. Uh, 
But uh, we know from the servant songs that God's going to reverse his misfortune. And that's really the subject matter of this song, uh, that God will reverse all of the misfortunes of his people. And think about Christ. He goes to the most cruelest form of indignity to suffer on the cross on behalf of his people, to render a sacrifice as a substitute to pay the penalty of their sins uh, that they might be called the sons of God. And um, he is crucified, dead, and buried. And then he's raised. And the New Testament tells us in Philippians that he's uh, given a name that's above every name. That the name of the Lord Jesus, every tongue will confess, and every knee will bow to him as the Lord of glory. Every knee. Not just Christians, but even the lost in the final judgment will acknowledge that he is the Lord of glory. We do it gladly. Uh, they will be made to do it in their subjection. Uh, but the point of Paul in Philippians is that the great God of heaven reverses the misfortunes of his son. And he will also reverse the misfortunes of his many sons, you and me. And so the second reason we're summoned to praise God in verses 6 to 9 is that although God is transcendent, he breaks into the creation uh, at will to engage his own uh, and to uh, reverse the misfortunes of his own. Um, contextually, uh, Psalm uh, 113 um, says uh, that he humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and on the earth. So that God condescends to those that are poor and needy. And the idea is that he, he's on his throne and he sees a misfortune. And then he acts to reverse it. Uh, sometimes immediately, sometimes over a long period of time. But the point is that he acts. Uh, of course, it doesn't really hold true to God because uh, God doesn't see misfortune. He knows them because God is omniscient. He knows everything in one eternal act. Uh, he learns nothing by watching the creation. Uh, if God learned, he wouldn't be God. You and I need to learn because we're imperfect. Uh, but God doesn't learn anything. He knows everything. He knows everything actual and everything possible. And uh, because he knows all things actual and possible, he sets in motion everything that will bring him the greatest glory. Uh, he's going to act. Uh, even though he's transcendent, he's going to condescend. Uh, the doctrine of imminence is that God is able to manifest his presence in intense, very powerful ways on behalf of those of his people that are in distress and reverse their misfortune. I mean, think of the incarnation. Uh, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He voluntarily leaves heaven uh, the praise of uh, angels, the perfections of the glory of God. He condescends in the incarnation to rescue his people. Who does that? God does in his son. Uh, he knows our estate, and because he is mighty, he is able to act and to save. And so Psalm 113, 
13, pardon me, verse 7. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. Um, dust is about as low as you can get. Um, we know from the creation account. Uh, by, oh, by the way, I, I might add that uh, I believe that God created us. Uh, I believe that he not only created us, he created our souls. And he owns us and we belong to him. Uh, and he created Adam out of the dust. Um, it's expression of his power. Uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 3, we know that Adam sinned and rebelled against God. Uh, in some very cruel manner or form, Adam worshipped the serpent above the creator of the serpent. Very vague form of idolatry. But he condescends to the word of the serpent who is uh, deceiving Adam and Eve. And so he engages in an act of utter rebellion. And God says, well, I created you from dust and to dust you're going to go. And so immediately death enters into the universe, which heretofore the universe had not known. As God punishes Adam and all of the sons of Adam. Um, I remind you that uh, all of us know um, we're going to die. It's a biological event, of course. It's also a moral event. We die because Adam fell in the garden. Yes, it's a biological event of incredible sadness. Sadder still is the moral reality. Because Adam fell, he introduced thorns and thistles and cancer and storms and earthquakes and every other form of evil into this universe because of the one act of one man, our forefather, Adam. And yet, even, even from this lowliest of states, God will rescue his own. Um, turn with me, if you would, in your Old Testament to Daniel chapter 2. Pardon me, chapter 12. I want to pick up on another word, uh, use of the word dust. Adam was created from dust. Uh, he is going to return to dust. So how in the world can we be rescued if we're turned back to dust? And Daniel says, uh, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. But the point of the text is that God will rescue his own from the dust of the ground. Uh, to what? To everlasting life. And they will shine like the brightness of the expanse of the heavens, Daniel says. It's one of the greatest texts of the, of the truth of the resurrection in all of the Old Testament. All of us in this room are going to die. Those who belong to Jesus Christ will be rescued. He will reverse the greatest of misfortunes and gather his own and make them shine like the brightness of the stars of heaven. How can God do that? Because he's God. 
If he could create Adam from the dust of the ground and return him to dust, he can rescue all of the sons of the last Adam. The majesty of simplicity, the beauty of the gospel. Uh, very interesting, uh, respecting the, uh, the dust, which is a reference in our psalm for the misfortunes of his people. Uh, the psalmist uh, compounds uh, the imagery of our distress and misfortune uh, when he says, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. Um, the ash heap is the place where uh, the maidens of the household would uh, empty their wood stoves, if you will, and take the ashes out somewhere. Uh, in other words, to an ash heap, to a lowly place, to a garbage dump. I used to barbecue with charcoal. Always a residue left, wasn't there? I'd have to gather the ashes and try to hide them because they're kind of unsightly. But God can rescue his own from the ash heap, from the lowliest of places. Remember the context of the psalm. He's going to rescue and reverse the misfortunes of his people who are unjustly treated. Uh, it's a metonymy or a figure of speech for the one who is lowly and brokenhearted and in great want because they're living in an ash heap and they need someone to rescue them. Who can that be? God, the God of heaven. Not just any God, but there's really only one God, the God of heaven. The God who has already begun our rescue in Jesus Christ as he rescues our spirits uh, from death and sin. Fiercing while the rich and famous can hire agents to act on their behalf, the poor seemingly have no one. While nobility have agents in court to protect and defend them from harm, from harm, pardon me, the poor seemingly have no one. Who will act for the poor and needy who are being mistreated unjustly? The court of heaven will. He's their agent. It implies that the man of faith has been wronged or under persecution or perhaps suffering from some manner of insufficiency. But we have an agent. It's called God. And he will act in due time. Now, by the way, one of uh, the great texts used in the first great awakening in the United States by Jonathan Edwards uh, was built uh, upon... Uh, the text in the Pentateuch, uh, in due time, their foot will slip. In due time, the unjust will be taken, and they will slip away. And the righteous will be gathered from the ash heap by the grace of God. Uh, because our God is exalted in the heavens because he is the supreme power, and he's able to reverse the misfortunes of his people. He doesn't need to go to the armory to draw weapons. He is the armory. He doesn't need to go to the bank to cash a check. He is the treasury. Because he controls it all. Every navy, every army, every soldier, every air force, every marine is ultimately under his command because he controls them all. He's the general 
an admiral of every army and navy that has ever marched or ever set sail. That's the point of the phrase in the Psalms, he's the Lord of hosts. And that's why he can rescue his own and reverse their misfortunes. Of course, our challenge, it's one of the most difficult challenges of all of life, is to wait for him to act. But notice when he acts what happens, verses 8 and 9, to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. And he makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. Um, this, this last uh, reference is to a symbolic reference to a person who's in abject need and poverty. A woman who cannot have a child. I mean, we could fashion it in a number of different forms. Uh, someone who's fired unjustly from a job. Uh, someone who's been mistreated by a judge who sometimes act unjustly. Uh, someone who's mistreated perhaps by a powerful interest group. In this case, it's a woman who's childless. In the ancient Near East, that was a severe burden upon a woman. Now, it is today sometimes as well. Uh, so who can rescue? Who can rescue and reverse the fortunes of this woman? Now, I believe that the psalmist is alluding to an event in which uh, that, that occurs. Uh, the event is the Song of Hannah. If you have your Old Testament, um, turn to uh, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 2. 1 Samuel is a... Uh, uh, great, great history book. Um, and uh, Psalm 113 picks up on the language of the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2 in verses 7 to 10. Notice the, notice the similarity of the historic event of the song of Hannah in Psalm 113. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low, he also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillar of the earth are the Lord's, and he sets the world upon them. He keeps the feet of the godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. And you can see multiple similarities between the song of Hannah and Psalm 113, because I believe... The psalmist is alluding to Hannah as a woman who at one point in her life was childish. Um, let's turn to the historic context of the song of Hannah. In the song, she's celebrating because something dramatic has happened to her. What could that be? Now, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, Hannah's uh, husband would give to her a double portion, for he loved Hannah. And now we come to her distress, for the Lord had closed her womb. She was childless. She couldn't, tried, but uh, was never able to have a child. And Hannah would go up often to the temple and pray in distress and tears for God to reverse her misfortune. 
Maybe she's the person who just lost a job, who was unfairly passed over in the promotion list. All of the inequities of life can be summed up in a certain sense in this dear woman. Uh, but she, she does something very unique. She continues to go to the house of God and she prays. And she prays with incredible passion. So much so that the high priest thinks there's something wrong with her. But there's nothing wrong with her. She's simply uh, pouring out her misfortune before God. And she prays a unique prayer. She says, God, if you will give me a son, uh, I will I will devote him to perpetual service at Shiloh. Let's look at verses 19 and 20. Um, Eli has said, well, Hannah, God's heard your prayers. You're going to have a son. Then they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah's wife. Notice the text. The Lord remembered Hannah. She has a child. Now I would remind you that's a figure of speech. Because the Lord forgets nothing. If he could forget, he wouldn't be God. He is acting to put Hannah in distress or she will devote her son to him. In time, in figurative language, um, he remembers her. Uh, Reminds you of the great uh, flood. The Lord remembered Noah. He had never forgotten Noah, for heaven's sakes. If he forget, he's lost control of the universe. God loses control of nothing. That's the point of his exalted majesty as the ruler of the heavens of the earth, the one supreme of all of life and history. But he remembers this dear woman in incredible distress, and she has a son. And true to her word, she takes him to Shiloh, and he lives there to serve the Lord. Now that creates distress all of its own, doesn't it? You think about it. So she goes up to Shiloh, she sees her son. And then she has to go home and leave her dearly beloved son and to miss him. And so God's going to reverse her misfortunes again. Because that is what God does on behalf of his people. Uh, chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Uh, then Eli blesses Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she has dedicated to the Lord. And they went to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. So God answers her prayers again. She's in distress. God reverses her distress. It's the point of the song. And that's why Hannah writes this beautiful song in the praise of the great God of heaven. And the reversal is beyond her expectations. She was just asking for another child, where she has several more children. 
and the grace of God. Now again, I would remind you this is not an absolute promise. Uh, I understand men and women are caught in medical conditions and sometimes they're rendered unable. We know that the ultimate cause of all things is the God of heaven, uh, but God is always going to take care of his own in the way that he chooses to do it. The point of his sovereignty and supremacy is that we can trust him. We can leave it with him and let it go because he's in control. And we can always know that in the perfections of God's timing and in his ultimate goodness and blessedness, he'll give us many sons of different form and fashion and function. And that God will always reverse the misfortunes of those who are his sons through Jesus Christ. None have ever gone to heaven and complained bitterly. It does not happen. God works in mysterious ways, but he works all things together for good, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. Uh, by the way, this text is picked up again, the imagery of it, uh, in the uh, book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 54. Um, Israel is in captivity. Uh, they're singing a very popular song. Woe is me, I'm undone. How will I ever get out of this place? How will I ever stop hearing about Marduk? God says, I'm going to answer your prayers. Shout for joy. Isaiah 54, 1. Shout for joy, O barren one, who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not prevailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tents. Go out to your house. You're going to have more sons than you could ever imagine. Ultimately, it's fulfilled in the immediacy of the nation of Israel when they come out of captivity, but the ultimate and greatest fulfillment is in the church, in the church of Jesus Christ. Many sons, in fact, like the sands of the seashore. How many is that, by the way? The point of the figure is innumerable, that heaven has a vast expanse, and God doesn't even have to add on to his house. He simply says, it's big enough for them all. Think of heaven in that way. All of the sons of God being gathered, a number without end, because of the majestic power of God, rescuing his own so that none are forgotten. And so um, the psalmist says, praise the Lord, because he reverses the misfortunes of the barren woman, of his people sitting in the ash heap, because that's what God does. You know, by the way, I, I would encourage you, by way of application, uh, we're very prone to love bad news. Uh, we're very prone to go into our house after some terrible misfortune and closing the curtains and weeping and crying. I understand that. I get that. I do that all the time myself. But at some point, your faith engages. God is at work. God has not forgotten you. Open the blinds. Dry your tears and bless the Lord of glory. In his time, your foot will be restored. 
and the foot of the wicked will slip. And he will reward his own and exalt their horns above the broken horns of the wicked, namely Psalm 75, which began our service. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. At his time. And he will exalt you at the proper time. It's an implied reality that the greatness of our God in the midst of the exigency of life forges our daily dependence upon him because we are in distress daily because of sin and inequity and incredible evil. We pray that God would restrain it, but it seems to be unbounded in our own culture. God will remember his own. He's not asleep. He will rescue all of his own at the right time. Remember reading uh, a couple of months ago uh, an account of, of an American officer uh, in the Pacific during the Second World War, uh, which is really some of those violent, ugly fighting. Uh, I'm not saying one was worse than uh, fighting in Europe, but if you ever read the great battlefields of the South Pacific, it's, uh, the cruelty is just unimaginable. Uh, this man's name was uh, Lieutenant Bill Calhoun. Uh, he was a platoon leader in an airborne regiment uh, in the Second World War, and uh, uh, his regiment was going to uh, engage in a combat jump over the tiny island of Corregidor uh, to begin the invasion of the Philippines. It was a very small drop zone, and when I was in the Army, I, I was not a jumper. I didn't jump out of airplanes. Uh, always admired those that did, but um, I drove around in a 52-ton vehicle, and they don't drop many of those out of airplanes. Uh, and when they do, bad things happen. Um, but uh, Calhoun was going to lead this combat jump, and so they land on Corregidor, and seemingly nothing happens. And then the Japanese engage in a very violent, ugly counterattack. And uh, Calhoun's uh, platoon began to suffer a lot of losses. And there's a point in, uh, in, in the, the battle where he began to just ponder the randomness over it all. It just seemed so random to him. He said a man would be standing right behind me, right to my left or right, and they would be killed and I would live. I would walk by a structure and nothing would happen. Uh, a member of my platoon would go in that structure and be killed. It began to trouble him. How can, how can one be taken and I be left? Just the utter randomness of the chaos of battle. And uh, Calhoun's soul became very troubled. He was a Christian, by the way. It's very interesting. Uh, at one point, he prayed a very simple prayer. Lord, I'm helpless. That's a profound prayer of the reality of every Christian. We are utterly helpless in the vices of evil men and wicked governments and dragons that seek to take us away. Lord, I'm helpless. If you want me to be with you, 
take me. And God didn't take him. He survived the chaos of random, utter, ugly battle. Went home to his wife, had children, had a successful dental career. He was a deacon in his church, caring for people, lived a long life. Then God took him. point of this is the point of the song. Sometimes we live in an ash heap of great distress and chaos. God is still in control. We'll rescue all of his own and none will be lost. One of my favorite texts of all of the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, and Enoch walked with God and then he was not, for God took him. God rescues all of his own. None are forgotten. All will be rewarded. And so the point of the psalm is very simple. All of us are in different forms of misfortune in life. God never says life is going to be fair. Uh, we shouldn't expect it to be. But God will rescue all that belong to him and set their feet on high and exalt their horns above the horns of the wicked. And so let us depend upon God, praise him after the manner of Psalm 113, and reckon that in God's own time, he will take us and we will be with him forever in eternal glory.